Welcome to Connecting Health's first podcast. Connecting Health is an online publication dedicated to spreading awareness regarding important and pertinent public health issues. We also put a special focus on engaging diverse perspectives from students around the world. I am Sarah from Seoul, South Korea, and today I am here with Michelle Jung from Utah, Elena from Alberta, Canada, Elaine from Nevada, and Sabahat from Dharan, Saudi Arabia. For this first episode of CIH Podcast, we are here to give you a global insider reopening during the pandemic. Then we'll provide an opinion about certain reopening questions that have engulfed the media for the past few months. One thing is for sure, nobody expected 2020 to be this. We were all excited about the new decade, for all the new things we'll do, and for all the places we travel. Well, none of this became really true. In December 2019, a pneumonia outbreak was reported in Wuhan, China. This novel strain of coronavirus quickly spread to the rest of the world, which this pandemic has resulted in travel restrictions and nationwide lockdowns in many countries. Michelle, would you like to share the logistics of COVID-19 in your state? Yeah, so I can first talk about Utah, which is where I'm currently located in. Um, so when COVID became a major issue within the United States near the winter season of 2020, Utah was not a state that was majorly concerned about it. I don't want to say that they didn't care about it, but it wasn't one of their main agendas because it wasn't an area that was significantly hit compared to other areas like New York or California. Um, There may have been areas like Salt Lake City that had some alarming number of cases, but the overall statistics for the state wasn't too bad. And to me, that kind of makes sense because Utah itself is a very large state compared to its population size. And so a lot of the cities are quite distant apart. So if Salt Lake City had a very high rate of COVID cases, it wouldn't have spread to other towns as quickly because of that distance. But also Utah itself is a very suburban and countryside state. So it was overall easy for people to social distance. And I think it's actually more difficult to meet a group of people that consists of more than 10. Um, But now being the second week of November, the story has changed and Governor Gary Herbert has announced a statewide mask mandate with additional measures of gathering limitations after COVID cases had a steep spike. And under that new mandate, obviously Utah residents are required to wear masks in public. And I think that's a bit late compared to what other states and cities have already done. But um, the governor had finally decided to make these measures because he found that there was a large burden on states, um, medical professionals um, during a time with this steep spike. And obviously, I definitely think this is a very late response because we're putting these new mandates after COVID cases became a major issue in Utah. So I think that's a bit alarming. Um, As for the logistics of Utah, Utah has about 130,000 cases with about 600 deaths, and we have a current positivity rate of 20.6% which is quite alarming because public officials have recommended about 5% um, in order for a state to flatten the curve. And we are currently four times away from hitting that goal of flattening the curve of COVID cases, which is quite concerning. But um, cases were starting to quickly rise during mid-September and continue to peak. 
And I think it's because A, it was homecoming season for high school students during mid-September. So even though the administration and districts in my town did not sponsor these events, um, the students and parents had planned unsanctioned homecoming dances. So there were still these large gatherings that should not have happened during a pandemic. Um, however, the state had recommended and not mandated um, limiting gatherings. So there wasn't a way for a company to stop these gatherings or for a group of people to stop these gatherings because it wasn't mandated it was only recommended and then b was that it was october spooky season and there are lots of talks about halloween not being the same as usual so a lot of um, specific party organizations within Utah were planning on holding Halloween parties, but the state government had tried to cancel them or were trying to prevent them from happening. Um, however, a specific state organization tried to hold, and they did hold, a large party near my hometown. A lot of college students had gone to that party on October 31st, and then they went to school that next week, went to class, and a lot of them don't wear their mask properly, so it's not surprising to hear that the cases started to take a very alarming rate within the second week of November and that resulted in the college town that I live nearby being Utah State University to fully go remote and due to all of this it makes sense why Utah COVID logistics are mostly consistent of younger populations but it also comes to show the irresponsibility and the larger interest in individualistic ideals of younger populations rather than them giving up some of their entertainment and individualistic needs for the better good of society and their community. Thank you, Michelle. Helena, would you like to share as well? For me, like, I could talk about two regions, and one is where I am originally from, so Alberta, and the other is where I go to school in Ontario. So to kind of introduce Alberta, there has been a steady increase, especially after high schools reopened. And in the summer, there were, like, no laws that enforce that masks are to be worn in enclosed spaces. So there was a high risk for exposure, but regardless, the government kind of held off on enforcing it until our numbers actually started to increase. And then around August, uh, they implemented that masks uh, are to be worn in indoor areas. And so within Alberta, I could talk more about high school just because my brother currently attends high school in person. And right now, high schools have reop uh, reopened and students were given the choice to choose online learning or in-person learning. Um, as a result of this, there have been multiple outbreaks at various public schools and based on like Alberta's official website, um, there are currently 56 schools that have had an outbreak. For my brother's school, their students aren't even allowed to switch kind of midway through, even if the student feels unsafe because of the outbreak happening um, in the school. So he's kind of stuck um, having to go in person, which I feel is a major flaw in the system right now, just because um, his school had recently had an outbreak with over hundreds of students um, being in quarantine um, and teachers also having to quarantine um, which I feel like is the first measure to, um, you know, containing the virus, but definitely um, that shouldn't be the end. 
And for Ontario, this is where Tan University, they recently had a surge of cases and people like refer it to their second wave. Um, Ontario has been reporting up to 732 cases in a single day, um, according to CTV News. And it has been the highest it's ever been since the beginning of the pandemic. And Ontario started their precautionary measures quite earlier back in March, but now with more people attending school in person and the province kind of running back to normal, the numbers have risen again. And also to talk more about the region like near McMaster, which is my school, McMaster has opened and this is causing a lot of concern in regards to students themselves also disrespecting social distancing rules, as Michelle briefly mentioned. And I'll talk more about this in our debate. To share a bit of my experiences, South Korea has been doing extremely well statistics-wise. South Korea approximately has 28,600 cases and 500 deaths. We have tested nearly 3 million people and fatality rate is 1.73%. For the past 10 months of this pandemic, the Korean government has been highly praised for its quick intervention in containing the virus. Once South Korea had the most cases second to Wuhan, China, due to the major community outbreak among the cult in Daegu. However, the government's intervention methods of implementing strict social distancing measures, contract tracing, providing easily accessible testings, and enlisting the public's help allowed the nation to mainly get the situation under control by the end of April. Currently, in October to November, we're not seeing any major outbreaks, but still it's recording a couple hundred cases per day. We were never in a lockdown, so I can't say specifically that reopening was done well or not. However, out of the three-tier emergency system, we were in level 2 and 2.5 for quite a while when we saw more than a few hundred cases per day. And the semi-lockdown was eased when we recorded two-digit cases. Instead of a nationwide lockdown, what we have been doing is mandating masks, alternating between virtual and offline learning, and social distancing in restaurants and cafes, which the public has followed well so far. The issue of privacy has been quite controversial in other countries, but I think the general consensus in South Korea is that we accept the loss of privacy as a necessary trade-off for public health security. And honestly, in a democratic unitary political system like Korea, local governments have limited autonomy and its public health governance is centralized, which enables South Korean agencies to act quickly to implement policy decisions at the local level. Overall, South Korea has been able to keep the disease under control without paralyzing the national health and economic systems, and the public is willing to sacrifice a bit of our conveniency for the nation's public health. Finally, I just kind of want to talk about Saudi Arabia. It's been really interesting because I actually go to boarding school in the U.S., and so I've been able to see the difference between the two countries. Um, so yeah, it's been really cool. If we're talking about stats, Saudi has around um, 35 million citizens in the country, residents. And, you know, now we're getting around 400. I think um, October 2nd marked 420 cases. So our case numbers are really low. Um, and they're going down gradually, which is really nice. At the peak of our corona time, which was like, you know, June, July sort of, we were getting anywhere from 3,000 to 4,000, even occasionally touching 5,000 cases a day. I think one thing that's really interesting about Saudi um, that I personally really liked was that right when we started getting corona cases, the country immediately shut down, put in quarantine measures, and just started enforcing those rules really strictly. We got curfews, things like that. And while it wasn't pleasant, it was really um, effective. People didn't go out at all, and our coronavirus cases really rapidly came down.
One other thing that I want to talk about about Saudi, which I think is also really unique to the country, is the fact that it has a really big um, labor force from countries like the Philippines, India, and Pakistan. It's this labor force actually that suffered a lot of the coronavirus cases and casualties. Um, it was just sort of two main reasons really. One, a lot of the laborers work in these camps where there's very little social distancing and they all like live together, sleep in dorm rooms together. And then the second was that a lot of these laborers didn't really have access to masks or, you know, no one sort of went and like told them to physical distance. And so it was, um, that was part of the reason why we were getting so many cases, I think, is just that that labor force um, wasn't really addressed as well as it should have been. Every podcast episode will have a quick public health-related OX question or a pun. For November's podcast, the question is, do facial coverings protect the wearer from coronavirus? For an answer, go check out our website at www.connectinhealth.org, which is a student-led public health website that is meant to provide a platform for students around the world to share their views about public health issues on a personal level and build a generation of conscious and informed individuals. Through monthly periodicals and forums, we have multiple resources to not only spread awareness, but also to provide you with space to freely express your thoughts on specific public health issues. Previously, we had a global perspective of what the pandemic looks like. Now, we will have a debate on some controversial school reopening questions that the media has been asking for several months. For a side note, we are not here to provide static answers. We are here to develop opinions and raise further questions for fruitful discussions. Let's go around the room to see what people think about, are your schools reopening? How do you feel about it? Let's have Helena start. Our school decided that we'd be virtual for both the fall and winter semesters. And it is pretty reasonable given that the numbers are rising every day and bringing thousands of students back on campus, which is a confined area, um, will definitely be harmful for the residents living in the city, um, since Hamilton, um, where McMaster is located, is basically a university city. And the population of just the residents living there are um, primarily older, older seniors. Um, and so the implications are actually even greater. And bringing students back means a lot more exposure to the virus, like potential exposure, which is definitely something that um, McMaster as a university has considered, I believe. And personally, um, how I feel as an out-of-province student is I'm glad and saddened at the same time since staying home will save me quite a lot of money since I'll be um, like staying at home with my mom and like just my family um, and I don't have to pay for my own groceries and stuff like that um, but at the same time I'll still be paying rent for my new student home near the university um, which isn't too great but a lot of students just can't get out of their contracts especially during this pandemic Another like con I feel is that I'll be missing like, a large part of the university experience, which is like living with friends in the same house and kind of studying all together. Um, but I guess it's a sacrifice that I believe a lot of students should make for health and safety of others and like their loved ones. Yeah, I, I mean, it's really interesting because I have new opinions about this. Before I was like really into 
the hybrid model which my school is doing. Um, so, you know, you can choose to either be remote and learn via Zoom or you can be on in-campus classes. And initially I was really for this. Um, now that we started the hybrid model though and I'm virtual, I really don't like it. it um, it's really, you feel disconnected from campus and it doesn't feel like you're engaging with your peers. I go to a boarding school and I think it's especially true because I see people having dorm meetings, um, playing sports outside, things like that, and that's stuff I can't do virtually. So I think the hybrid model, like it has its benefits, but I just it's not super convenient and not super fun for everyone involved. South Korea was never in a lockdown, thankfully, so our school never reopened like most US or UK schools are now planning to. When we just went back to school in August after the summer, stricter rules were implemented. Not only will we always have to wear a mask, transparent plastic walls were put in between desks and in cafeteria to minimize transactions, and etc. But the biggest change is how students are switching between virtual and in-person learning. For two days in high school, grade 9s and 10s will be on campus, and for the next two days, grade 11s and 12s will be on campus. And additionally, with strict rules that international schools are following, we were able to complete the fall sports season quite successfully and continue other extracurricular activities. Obviously, international trips will not be happening this year, but students and teachers are very adaptive to all these changes, so I felt quite good about starting school again in August to continue our learning. In conclusion, how the government has been mandating public health policies and school leadership terms have passed them on to the implement them in school environments has been successful. Of course, this wouldn't have been possible without students in Korea, who I think are very socially responsible and conscious of how the following of public health policies are important. And hence, so far, we are doing well. So I currently attend Wellesley College, which is a liberal arts school in Massachusetts. And the administration decide to go hybrid, which means that the first and second year students are allowed to live on campus during the fall, and then the third and fourth year students are allowed to live on campus during the spring. And I think this decision was made by administration because obviously having everybody back onto campus in may increase the risks of um, worsening the spread of COVID, especially when our school is very enclosed and is very small. But also every person is required to live in their own dorm rooms. So I think it makes sense for administration to split the number of students allowed onto campus by approximately half. I actually go to the same school as Habaha, and as also a remote learner, I'm definitely feeling disconnect from the community that is actually on campus. But on the other hand, I sort of understand what's going on with the hybrid model, because with boarding schools, they're kind of in a unique situation, with a large population of students being boarding, and thereby having a lot of daily contact with each other, that creates a large chance for transmission. And with the majority of the student population being minors, the boarding schools face a large amount of liability compared to other schools to protect their students. Since I'm hearing a lot about school reopenings, we should go on to some pros and cons of virtual learning as well as in-person learning amidst the pandemic. Michelle, please share your thoughts first. For me, I can speak more about remote learning because I'm currently in that situation. Remote definitely is difficult to me in the aspect where I feel less motivated to work at home and I don't have my friends, my classmates, or even my roommate to push me or motivate me to work. Um, alongside with that, I'm a STEM student, so I'm obviously missing out on wet lab bench work for my research project, but also to 
be able to improve my research skills that I'll probably be using in the nearby future. And I think that's a bit of a bummer because also in that aspect, when I go back onto campus, it means that I have to recover from that and be able to work on that first before writing a paper or making a project out of it. So yeah, that's a bit of a bummer. Um, but also I think socially, I think remote has been very depressing because I'm not laughing with my friends. I'm not going to orgs that makes me feel connected to my school. Um, I feel very lonely, obviously, because I'm always by myself watching a screen. And in that aspect, I think that just being around people is something that I really miss a lot. And yeah, it's kind of different from having that energy of a person like really next to you rather than seeing somebody on the screen. Um, but I also see the pros to it. I'm definitely learned a lot about myself um, compared to if I was not remote. Um, for example, I thought I was not capable of finding resources myself or doing things by myself academically, but I learned that um, I learned that I'm actually pretty capable of learning by myself and depending on my brain, I think that brought me a lot more confidence to me academically. I also feel more connected with my family where I'm eating with them during lunch and dinner. So it's definitely a moment that I missed when I was in college and I think that I'm, I'm learning how to cherish it more. And so I think in that aspect, that kind of balances out all of the cons of remote learning. So I don't necessarily see remote learning as a terrible idea, I guess. I think everything balances out in the end to make it an experience that will make somebody a better person because obviously it made me more confident about myself academically. As a student in South Korea, we were completely virtual from March till the end of the school year and from August we have been on and off in virtual and in-person learning. I'm not a fan of virtual learning on all sides, to be honest. The biggest reason is how much we have to depend on technology for just daily things. I will wake up, go on my phone, go to my computer, go to my phone, and repeat. Phone and laptop is literally just our only sources of connections for our social life, education, and communication. We can't expect a Zoom call with our friend or a teacher to be as information as rich as a sit-down or a proper talk with them. In my personal opinion of a school is that it's supposed to be an interactive environment with their colleagues and teachers, and it shouldn't just be copying down text from presentations or consider constant texting as a main source of communication. Additionally, the lack of activeness has been just so painful. I see my younger siblings sit at their desk for 8 hours a day without any sports or playing outside and it makes me so sad. At least elementary and middle school students should be running outside, playing tag, and getting some fresh air and be active, but with online school, these things have been almost impossible. Like Michelle said, I really do miss the good amount of pressure that a school environment gives. The excitement, the motivation that school gives to everyday lives is such an important aspect that I hadn't realized before. And lastly, I honestly think that academic integrity has been just crushed during online school. It's not that everyone's cheating and everyone's getting hundreds, but for teenagers, high school grades are all that it matters for most of them, and with numerous temptations of cheating at our fingertips, it puts students who keep their academic integrity and dignity at a disadvantage. As a final note, although I do prefer in-person learning, nation's public health is a priority, and until we have a vaccine or better prepared, we should continue virtual learning or a combination of both. 
I definitely agree with all the previous points raised about like virtual learning and in-person learning. I can't really say much for the experience of in-person learning for this whole pandemic because I'm also currently remote and my school has not re like had physical in-person classes quite yet. Um, but I guess I can, I'm just going to further add on to the cons of virtual learning and that there's also like an additional issue of, I guess, equity and that a lot of people who do not have like good internet access or might not have the same kind of access to electronics that their other fellow students have definitely um, are kind of suffering in virtual learning. And it's just like, I guess, not fair in that aspect. But I definitely see the reason that a lot of schools are turning to virtual learning instead of in-person learning due to the many possible risks. I actually am not quite familiar with the current statistics about the spread in school, but given that within my country, the COVID-19 infection is still very high, it seems like even given sort of the cons of virtual learning, I don't really see it as like the best option to also like have everything in person. As Elaine mentioned, we go to the same school, so, you know, there might be some overlap in what we say, but I've been noticing that virtual learning is really taking a toll on a lot of students' mental health. Um, and this has been mentioned, but I think part of the reason is that in virtual learning, you're missing those day-to-day -day interactions um, that happen between classes. And I think those are actually so valuable. Um, you know, just laughing, like, it's a really small thing, but when you don't laugh between classes, like you just like lack this energy, staring at a screen for so long, it's very draining. And so that's one thing that I've been noticing, the effect of virtual learning on literally like your happiness and energy levels is pretty detrimental. Um, one plus definitely is getting to be home with your family and spend more time at home. I know when I was at school, I was sleeping very little, um, playing intense sports, and so kind of taking a break from that has been good for my body. It's been like pretty healing. So that's been a good thing. So um, it's really interesting sort of. I mean, I'm starting to get really tired of virtual learning after nine months of being out of school, but I still see the benefits that's offered me. Thank you, Sabahat. Helena, would you like to share? In Canada, um, a university called Western, they actually opened um, up the school and all the students actually went back and they had their um, welcome week and everything. And as I expected, on September 17th, um, CBC News covered that 28 students tested positive for COVID. They went to bars and socialized at parties. Um, so it kind of adds on to the testament that when schools go back in person, it's kind of easy for students to forget that we're still living in a global pandemic and um, so easy to turn back into their old habits of meeting friends and partying and not really understanding the severity of the issue and the implications that their actions can actually hold. And to kind of switch over to virtual learning, I think that virtual learning can be good for students who have great self-control and who really like the convenience of virtual learning. So you can wake up within a matter of minutes before your class and still make it on time. And you don't have that lost time in between when you're walking to class or when you're eating. And it's also great that because you're learning virtually, you can be around family, which is something Michelle touched up on. Because after you kind of transition into university, especially if you're trying to look for things to do in the summer, 
um, or like an internship and stuff like that, it's very hard to get in contact with your family for long periods of time. So I think those are the benefits. And virtual learning can also help with productivity because um, it's a lot easier to block out time for extracurriculars because like, as I mentioned before, like there's no travel time, there's no two hour eating break times with your friends. Um, it's just all like up to you to decide how you want to manage your schedule. For me to talk a little bit about both, I think in-person learning is definitely beneficial to many students as it can keep them accountable with their work. And being around friends is definitely beneficial um, because they can give you motivation and be a source of stress relief um, and to improve your mental health. Um, just because of social connections um, actually do mean a lot for our bodies. Eating that could occur like um, Sarah mentioned. And the fact that there is asynchronous learning and synchronous learning kind of adds on to the time students have to spend on attending lectures, but also watching asynchronous lectures on the side on top of assignments, quizzes, and tests, which is burdening on students. Thank you, Elaine, Sabahat, Helena, and Michelle for being part of CIH Podcast's first episode. That is it for today, and please remember that COVID is still an ongoing public issue around the world, even if your school or town is reopening. Reopening is not an evidence that the situation is getting better or that we are returning to the pre-coronavirus times. Still, be cautious, wear a mask, and social distance. We hope that this podcast provides you with some insight on various perspectives surrounding reopening. Here is one question to think about as we end this episode. Who should dictate reopening decisions for schools? Please share your thoughts on www.connectinhealth.org. Thank you for listening. We will see you next time.